0: Hello, Cachimbonas. I am really excited to be you episode 24 of season 5 of Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. As a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants— Yvette prioritizes, uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans. On this episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing lawyer, author, and legal ethics professor Richard Zittrin about his book, Trial Lawyer, A Life Representing People Against Power. He shared the most difficult legal ethical dilemmas he faced as a trial lawyer, whether a lawyer should act as a quote mouthpiece for a client or their quote savior and how he navigated being a mouthpiece for clients who were minors while advocating for what he believed to be in their best interest. If you want to support the podcast, an amazing and 100% free way to do so is to leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts, but especially if you listen to Apple Podcasts, because the ratings and reviews and especially continually getting new ones is what helps the podcast gain visibility, new listeners, and Spotify also has a rating system. So if you listen there, leaving a rating and a review there is also super helpful But also, you can become a patron for five to ten dollars a month. You can receive access to the lit. Lilith Review, which is book club style chats with women of color. Right now, I'm reading Abolition Feminism Now, an abolitionist text that I'm super excited to delve into. For $3 a month, you can get a monthly shout out on the podcast. Shout out to Araceli Rivera-Cohen and Sai for being Cachimbona apoyadoras. You can also support the podcast by sharing with a friend or sharing on social media. You can follow at Radio Cachimbona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And you can read Eva Borja's stories on balls and strikes where I'm writing critical commentary about the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary. I hope that you enjoy this episode and thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Today I have Richard Zittrin, author of Trial Lawyer, A Life Representing People Against Power. Um, we're going to be talking about that book today, but before we get into it, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, that? So I wanted to start off with a legal ethics question because you are a legal ethics professor and you shared in the book that oftentimes in your career you had to choose between these legal ethical requirements and what you felt was morally right. And so I wanted to ask which of those times was most difficult for you to navigate?
1: Wow, that's a tough question. <laughs> after, after 40 years as a trial lawyer, uh, right? there are many. I had a case that's one of the chapters in the book, I think it's chapter 10. And I was representing a doctor Uh, who was accused of molesting a patient, but there was very little evidence. This was back at the time when there was the view as a result of McMartin daycare case that every child who told somebody about something that it was true and nobody had any training about how to talk to children who could be very suggestible in the hands of adults, particularly older male adults. And I thought that we were going to win the case, and the first trial hung nine to three to convict him. And the the book will tell the whole story, but what happened that's relating to a difficult ethical issue is the judge, uh, the way we do things in California, the judge who heard the first trial was going to hear the second trial. And she, for some reason, thought my client was guilty. I guess that was the prevailing wisdom at the time, back in the 80s. And during the trial, during the second trial, there were references to another proceeding. And I was concerned that the jury might think that somehow he had been convicted and had been overturned on appeal and he was getting another chance, rather than it had been a hung jury. And it was very clear to me
0: what are the rules about being able to disclose that to juries?
1: Well, in this case, the rule is the judge told me if I did it, I was in all mess of trouble. Okay. Uh, was there I, a legal I, basis
0: for that, or was that just the judge ruling in their own discretion?
1: That's the kind of thing that I think is in the judge's discretion. I mean, okay. she told me not to do it. It was very clear I couldn't do it. And the tough part was I had a very honorable district attorney on the other side who later became a friend. I had a lot of unhonorable or dishonorable <laughs> district attorneys, but this fellow was not one of these. He was really yeah. a prince of regard. But I knew that I had to at some point slip in there about this flag And so I just did it at a moment when I thought it was relatively nondescript and I could get away with it just kind of slipping out, and I did it. And I don't know that the judge noticed it, but my opposing counsel did. And afterward, we... I finished the trial, which I won, mm-hmm. and was buying him a drink in the bar across the street. He <laughs> said, you know, why did you do that? And you shouldn't have done it. And I felt bad because he was really a guy. But I felt the moral compulsion to let the jury know that he had not been convicted, like
0: mm-hmm.
1: right what the judge had told me.
0: Yeah.
1: There's another issue, though, that to me is the toughest ethical dilemma. Would you like to hear about that? Yes. <laughs> so, and, and again, this is something that I write about in the book,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, in one chapter in particular. And the question is whether the lawyer should be the mouthpiece for the client, Right. whether the lawyer should act in the best interest of the client to kind of act as the lawyer's savior. And of course, now the term white savior is very common, mm-hmm. not white. But I fortunately decided that at least in this situation, I should not be the savior, that my obligation was to do what my client wanted, even if it made no sense to me. And that happened to me many years ago when I had a 14-year-old kid who had shot somebody. He was a screwed up kid. Mm-hmm. He was a white kid, mm-hmm. but it didn't matter. I mean, he was a screwed up kid.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he told me that he wanted to go to the youth authority, which is like youth prison and a very, very place. Mm -hmm. And I wanted him to go into a home placement where he could get treatment and counseling and live at home. And I pushed him really, really hard to do that, even though his family situation wasn't great. And he just wouldn't budge. So the issue came up at the Disposition hearing, which is sentencing for juveniles. Mm-hmm. And the judge turned to me and he said, Mr. Slitron, what do you recommend? And my lawyer training told me to say, Well, my client, Joseph, obviously, me, mm-hmm. wants to go to the youth authority, but I think that's a really bad idea and I think he ought to go to home placement. But I had Thought long and hard about it, and I realized that if I didn't speak up for what Joseph wanted, nobody would. Right. So I told the judge to send him to the youth authority, because that's what my client had told me to do, even though he was 14 and mentally impaired. And that was very early on in my legal career, and it kind of set the standard for other situations like that a couple of which are described in one of the chapters in the book in which I talk about three cases. And in two of them, this issue of what I'll call paternalism mm-hmm. uh, uh, came up and uh, the book talks about how I grappled with those decisions.
0: Right. Was there a counsel appointed for the 14 year old, like uh, advocate of the child's best interest? That's something that happens in some proceedings, but I'm not sure if was was this person tried as an adult first of all?
1: No, he was tried as okay. a juvenile. But okay. it was a criminal. It was a criminal case. So in a civil case where there's a dependency proceeding, and this yeah. is elected, in those cases, um, someone would be appointed to represent the child's interest. In this case, I was basically a criminal defense lawyer. Uh, But the issue would be the same. Let's represent a 14-year-old kid. And it says, I want to go home to a parent who has been molesting the child. Right. I mean, how do you deal with that? So to me, and that's a tougher situation than the one I faced, to me, that's the toughest ethical dilemma I've experienced during the course of my career.
0: Right.
1: It's actually something that I've discussed with a lot of people who represent juveniles and represent criminal defendants. In fact, I'm doing that in a couple of weeks for the California Public Defenders Association. This is going to be the topic. Oh, okay. be the mouthpiece or should we be the savior? And what do you do if it's not just the youth authority
0: yeah.
1: But a molesting, step, right. let's say.
0: Right. is there a conclusion to the to the question?
1: Well, I, I think I think is I hate to give you a lawyer answer, but it's kind it, of a, it
0: depends. <laughs> a, just by
1: case basis. But yeah. I default on the side of being mouthpiece for the child or for the client, the two adult clients in this chapter in the book where I talk about that uh, trying to be persuasive, but if you don't persuade, you know, then you gotta let the client do what she wants or he wants. Um, but there are exceptions because if the child is seven or six and wants to go home to a molested parent, that's going to be over the line for me. I'm not going to be able to do that. Right. At some point you have to figure out uh, that the independent ability of the client to act is, is, is not sufficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, but well, uh, this, this case that I had a couple of years into practice happened in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. And here it is over 40 years later. And this is still a burning issue among lawyers who represent uh, poor people, criminal defendants, juveniles and the like. Such that like when I had a conversation with the lawyer running this uh a conference about a case in their office. I do a lot of pro bono work with legal services lawyers. He said, you got to come to our statewide conference and do it there. This is a burning question. So Mm. it is not one that's gotten solved. And it's not one that the ethical rules directly cover. And a lot of it has to do with searching your own heart and really thinking hard about what the right answer is for you and your client.
0: Right. I think this dilemma is a good segue for the next question that I wanted to ask because uh, scotus this term ruled in a bunch of cases that essentially made it harder for people with ineffective lawyers to get those sentences or convictions revisited to get new trials. and this is you know particularly concerning when, as you say, it's kind of an open question among the public defense bar if you're going to be the mouthpiece or if you're going to supersede your client's judgment. And I, you know, I get that it's complicated, but there should be open avenues for appeal, especially considering the fact that there is a power imbalance between lawyers and clients. And it's just not fair to blame clients for the actions of their lawyers in the way that SCOTUS has. Um, So I wanted to ask from your perspective as somebody who was a trial lawyer for over 40 years what do you think? What do you think about these rulings and what effect they'll have on criminal defendants?
1: Yeah, it's very disturbing to me. It, two things are disturbing. The Supreme Court is extremely disturbing to me, not just for that. Yeah. yeah. Between Dobbs on mm-hmm. reversing Roe and the gun case and the climate case mm-hmm. and a lot of other stuff. The Supreme mm-hmm. Court is not representative of the America. But it's also disturbing to me that lawyers fail to really act in their clients' best interests way too often.
0: Yeah.
1: Too often lawyers come in and say, I know the best thing to do, so I'm going to do it. And this is what you got to do, trust me. And again, there's some stuff in the book that I write about learning uh, to ask your client to trust you, because my first client was in a lockdown in San Quentin State Prison. And you can't go into the holding cell in which we visited and say to him, trust me, because he'd laugh in your face. And it's ridiculous. Yeah. So, yeah. One, one of the things that lawyers don't do very well is they don't really appreciate that their clients are every bit capable and human and knowledgeable, and probably in most cases, more capable and knowledgeable than you this is mm-hmm. their case, not yours right and lawyers do a lousy job as a whole in treating their clients as equals mm-hmm. so the first step in avoiding the kind of situation the supreme court has reversed is for lawyers to understand that they have to treat their clients as human beings who have free will and who get to decide what's in their best interests, not lawyers telling them what's in their best interest So that's a big part of it. The other thing is, that, of course, the Supreme Court is helping to destroy the rights of criminal defendants in these cases by limiting all kinds of remedies in terms of convictions that may very well have been wrongful. Everybody knows now there are wrongful convictions, but when the opportunity to show they're wrongful has been limited by the Supreme Court, we're keeping innocent people in prison, and that is a horrible result.
0: Yeah, it's super horrifying.
1: It's so, pretty super horrifying to keep guilty people in prison in the way that we're doing this.
0: Oh, I agree with you. I agree so, with
1: you. Right? We, we have private prisons and more people in prison per capita than any other uh, uh, so-called first world country. Uh, there's some stuff about that in the book as well. I just think that's appalling that we have Uh, as many people in prison as
0: we do. Yeah, definitely, especially because so many people are, you know, in jail, pretrial detention, they technically haven't been convicted of anything, they're not, haven't been convicted of being guilty of whatever they've been charged with. Um, But even as you say, even the people who are convicted, like they don't deserve to be living in these deplorable conditions, you know, being locked up in solitary for 23 hours a day is just inhumane, whatever way you slice it and nobody deserves to be treated that way.
1: In the sa- Let me just say briefly. Yeah, yeah. In the San Quentin Six case, when I was a law student, my client and the other five guys were accused of five murders and assaults on the guards that are life sentences. And eventually the case, about 80% of the case for the prosecution fell apart. Yeah. What the six guys wanted more than any other motion about the facts of the case, was a motion to allow them more time to exercise, Mm -hmm. better conditions of confinement, to be unshackled in the uh, courtroom issues that were more important than the facts of the case. And ultimately, a habeas corpus petition I wrote about conditions of confinement went in front of a federal judge and lasted for 13 years and finished a lot of the conditions of confinement. It was a very meaningful uh, thing for me to have been able to assist them. And again, that's by listening to what they wanted to do, not necessarily yeah. what my boss wanted to do.
0: Right. Right, because like, lawyers are kind of very focused on the legal outcome of the case, but oftentimes... You know, of course, it makes sense that as the people are actually experiencing the terrible conditions of incarceration, people want, you know, people also are trying to prioritize humane conditions while they're fighting their case. So, this is great because I did want to ask you about the San Quentin Six case. Which is where George Jackson, a Black Panther leader, and five other people were killed at San Quentin prison. You represented Johnny Spain, who was also a Black Panther, who was accused of conspiring to kill those individuals. The trial lasted 17 months, and there are still multiple competing theories for what actually happened that day. I know you state that you ultimately don't really know what happened, but I figured I would ask anyway. What is the version of events that makes most sense to you?
1: Well not the version presented by the prison officials and the prosecution, which I can describe to you briefly as George Jackson comes back from a visit with his lawyer, Stephen Bingham, who was the seventh defendant who fled the jurisdiction and went to Canada and has a wig on and with one hand takes off the wig, with the second hand pulls out a nine millimeter a Spanish old style gun, and with his third hand, inserts a clip. And <laughs> one of the yeah, that's three hands. You counted well. <laughs> and, and and one of the guards there said that there was a second clip, so that might have might required a fourth hand. The right. other the other theory was that Jackson, who was George, was a big big deal. He yeah, had written this best selling book. He was regarded as a leader of the Black Panthers. He was a founder of the Black Guerrilla Family, which was a prison gang. that was very political. And a lot of people felt that the prison system wanted him dead and that the whole thing was a setup to plant the gun, either make it available to him or to actually plant it on him, and that the frame-up or the conspiracy was by the prison, and what happened was it got out of hand because when the when George returned from his visit, he was able to open all of the cells in the so-called adjustment center, which was mm-hmm. the high security, post-lockdown part of the prison, mm-hmm. and stuff began to happen. Uh, now, no one has a photographic memory defendants that I know, including Johnny, who I uh, just talked to uh, last week, are very foggy on what happened. Because
0: it was, yeah.
1: you know, first of all, all those guys suffered from PTSD already. Yeah. Locked down for 23 and a half hours a day. Right. And half of the time, you don't get that half hour because something comes up and they say, oops, can't give you your half hour today. You're yeah. on PTSD. And then the explosion, explosive and then the explosive nature of the events right were extraordinary uh, johnny ran out from the adjustment center following george they killed george johnny ran into the bushes was not shot and his memory of what happened doesn't exist right. so we don't really know what happened but the theory that it happened the way the prosecution said is mighty thin the proof of that is that in about 40 some felony charges i believe 40 something like that felony charges oh wow only convictions on five or six and johnny's two convictions for murder were overturned twice so that brings it down to three or four convictions out of 40 something uh three of the guys were completely acquitted. Another one was found guilty only of a minor assault and released. And only one person stayed in prison for the rest of his life.
0: Why did the prison want to, or would the prison have wanted to, target George Jackson? He mentioned that he was a well-known Black Panther leader. Why would the prison want to target him?
1: Well, at that time, this occurred in 1971. And at that time, Black Panthers had grown very powerful. Mm-hmm. Huey Newton had gone to prison on a charge, but was later released. He was considered the leader of the Black Panthers. Uh, Bobby Seale was part of the Chicago 8 trial. that became the Chicago 7 when they muzzled Bobby. And eventually, he was acquitted in a separate trial. Uh, Fred Hampton, the leader of the Black Panthers in Chicago, was only 20, 21 years old. Uh, the police busted into his apartment without knocking under the so-called no-knock law, shot him dead. The FBI and most law enforcement authorities saw the Black Panther, Panthers as a huge threat. And I, my understanding is, and the best evidence to me is that they wanted these folks eliminated. Mm-hmm. And the prison system, it's even more significant if you're a prison official because you want to be able to control the people in prison and not let those who have ideas spread those ideas and you know revolutionize prisoners. Right. So I can't speak to the motives of those people. Right. I'm not inside their heads, yeah. but that's what it appears to be to me. Yeah.
0: And what was the deal with the Spanish Civil War? A pistol. Well, what? The, what, like, where did that come from? What? Well,
1: nobody knows where it came from. So the gun that was found was a nine-millimeter Astra. So it's an automatic. So it doesn't have a chamber; it has a clip. And it dated from the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s. And no one knows how that gun came. The gun. No one knows why it was this old-fashioned gun. It just was. The interesting thing is that in the early days of reporting about the case, there was a lot of confusion in the press about what gun it was. Mm-hmm. Some people said it was a 22. There was reports that there was another gun. And it turned out that it was a nine millimeter Astro pistol. And I actually never knew it dated from the Spanish Civil War until I was doing the research to write the chapter of the book. Oh, wow. Yeah, because
0: yeah, that fact made it so bizarre to me. Like, why would somebody have such an old-timey gun?
1: Yeah, it's it's bizarre, and it wouldn't be consistent with George Jackson having the gun. Because, yeah,
0: yeah. Uh,
1: it's like some old soldier might have had it in, in, in a closet or something, but the answer to that is no one knows.
0: Right. Right. So you mentioned how a lot of these convictions were eventually overturned, and I wanted to ask you to speak to how conspiracy charges are a really useful tool for prosecutors to bring forward cases, even when there is such flimsy evidence, because like even even now, it's difficult to reconstruct what happened. The story that they told from the very beginning was implausible, and yet the prosecution did move forward, did bring these cases and did get some convictions, at least at first. And I think that conspiracy charges are a part of that and are a very useful tool for prosecutors. So I wanted to ask you to speak on that.
1: Well, just to clarify a bit, only one person was convicted under a conspiracy theory and that was Johnny. Okay. The only one convicted of murder. Three people were acquitted outright The fourth was convicted of an assault that he may have committed on a guard. Mm -hmm. And the fifth person was convicted of an assault by slitting somebody's throat, Mm -hmm. a guard's throat. And that guard lived to testify that Mm -hmm. that defendant did it. So there Mm -hmm. was direct evidence. So the conspiracy, as it resulted, actually related only to Johnny. But it was charged as a conspiracy. So here was their theory. These six guys, and Bingham, the lawyer who fled, conspired with person or persons unknown to kill those guards and the two white trusty inmates who delivered food who were killed. And we complained, I think rightly, in all kinds of motions, that you couldn't be asked to you couldn't be charged with a conspiracy with people unknown. Because how do you defend right. against that?
0: How do you defend against that? Like, you don't right. know who your conspirators are.
1: <laughs> right. And that's exactly what we said. So we made a motion to dismiss based on the fact. And we made a demur, which is to say that the indictment did not state an action against Johnny. He was the only one who hadn't made that motion. We made it right after I got into the case. Of course, the court denied it, but the theory was the same. How can you conspire with people when you're not telling us who those people are? Yeah. And I still believe that to be the case. But we were overruled by the courts. And in fact, the law is, which I don't think is right, that you can conspire with persons unknown. I don't know how you can defend against that.
0: Exactly.
1: And when Johnny's conviction was overturned twice, It was not on those grounds.
0: When it was appealed, what was the successful ground?
1: The ultimately successful ground, and it's really interesting because we were talking before about how the client should have the autonomy to do what the client really thinks is most important. What Johnny thought was most important were the conditions of his confinement and the change he had to wear in court. Right, we haven't talked about the chains yet. Right, he had complained about the conditions of his chains in court many times. On a couple of occasions, he refused to go to court and wrote the judge a note saying, I can't go. It's too painful for me to to be there. Mm -hmm. After he was convicted, he was asked whether he had anything to say. And he was unable to stand up because he couldn't stand up being tied down to the chair. But he said, you have chained me up like an animal and treated me like an animal and I haven't been able to communicate with my lawyers, and I haven't been able to participate in my own defense. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, the reason that his conviction was overturned the second time which decided the matter was because the federal judge found that the trial judge never made a finding that there was a need to chain up Johnny and the others. And he was in such pain that he couldn't participate effectively in his own defense. So when all was said and done, who was it who got it right? The client. Wow.
0: That's a really good story for why you should listen to the client.
1: (laughs) You bet. He was, and he was amazed, an exceptionally smart man, extremely well read, very thoughtful. Uh, I'm glad that I, uh,
0: Yeah, yeah, that's really amazing to hear. I mean, that definitely doesn't happen with every lawyer client relationship. Jackson was sentenced to between one year and life for robbing a gas station. Um, And that's because this is that was during the era of indeterminate sentencing. Can you explain how torturous and arbitrary indeterminate sentencing was?
1: Indeterminate sentencing was supposedly used to emphasize the ability to rehabilitate in prison. Because if you are sentenced for one year to 14 or one year to life, and you rehabilitated, then you could get out. But in fact, the way it was used was to make people like George Jackson a political prisoner. Right. In prison, he was highly political. Uh, There were incidents in Soledad Prison in which three prisoners were killed, including his mentor. And then later, a guard was killed, tossed from an upstairs railing uh, into the uh, prison yard. And he was accused with two other people of that uh, homicide. And he was never going to get out. So indeterminate, one year to life meant life for somebody like him. Right. for somebody else who was going to play by the rules or was going to pretend to play by the rules, they would get out much more quickly.
0: Or if they were white, right? Or, you know, had some other factor like that.
1: Yeah, well, clearly it had an adverse effect on people of color. One of the interesting things is, I just write a little bit about this in the book. When I got into practice after we left the San Quentin Sixth Case, uh, started doing other work. My mentor had done a lot of prison work, which is how we got into the San Francisco case in the first place. And we started doing habeas corpus writs for people who had indeterminate sentencing. And these were all people of color. Mm-hmm. Because what happened is the prison would take them up on parole, you know, say you have got one to 14 years for a burglary or something like that. Uh, hear their parole hearing and say, no, you got to do X, Y, Z programs. And they'd go and do X Y Z pass, right. and then they'd say, "Okay, you got to do A B C program," and they'd do A B C program and pass, and then they'd say, "No, no, no, you got to do uh, a year of shu, which was the special, special, which was the special housing unit," and they'd do that and they'd do fine, and they'd come back, and they'd still be denied, and then we would take a writ to the uh, uh, state court and say, "Look, the prison keeps on saying do X, you did X." do Y, he did Y, do Z, he did Z, he did them all fine, so let them out. And we actually had a lot of success getting people out that way. But we were two lawyers and there's a huge system and all of them were indeterminate sentences. And there were a bunch of lawyers who did these hearings in addition to us, but we we were just scraping the very surface of it because Mm -hmm. there were thousands of guys in prison with these indeterminate sentences and they kept on moving the finish line each year so they couldn't get out right most of them didn't have lawyers
0: and the parole board is composed of of people who are all in corrections um like people who were of the prison it's not like former defense lawyers on the parole board
1: no although it's changed to a certain extent oh Uh, good it began to change there was a woman named Patrice russian was an African-American woman who became, I believe, head of the Department of Corrections and also, I think, previously was on the parole board. She was really a reformer, but this was a black dot in the landscape of old white men.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, Arizona is not there at all. So.
1: <laughs> is that where you are in Arizona?
0: Yeah, I'm in Tucson. Did play a minor role in Johnny Spain's case, so they reversed the lower court, um, which had reversed Johnny Spain's conviction, and the Supreme Court did it. Well, now it's not as unusual, but they did it like in this peremptory posture, and it was unsigned. Why do you think that they did that?
1: Because they were nasty. So the district court judge Felton Henderson a wonderful and enlightened African-American district court judge reversed Johnny's conviction because the judge in the trial had met with a juror who said that she had had a bad experience with, and did not like anyone associated with, the Black Panthers. Mm-hmm.
0: And Johnny was the only Black
1: Panther among the six. Okay. So after uh, Johnny's conviction, wonderful appellate board Dennis N.S. Uh, appealed on that basis, and Judge Henderson reversed it. And the Ninth of the Court of Appeal upheld the reversal. And we all thought, wow, it's going to get a new trial. Mm-hmm. And when it went to the Supreme Court, and all we got back was a maybe one-page document saying, we deny Sushiari." which is the review by the Supreme Court. Or maybe we grant it. Who cares? Yeah. But we did not relief and reverse the Ninth Circuit and send it back without anything more. And we were shocked because at least at that time, that never happened. Again, remember the times. This was the late 70s. This is the Black Panther who was convicted of murder in San Quentin. Uh, remember the times when who was yeah. off the Supreme Court and they called it, you know, nine old white men for a reason.
0: Right.
1: And uh, although it was a shocking result, uh, it probably shouldn't have been that surprising. Right. So fortunately, Dennis, we're to save this other issue about the chains. Mm-hmm. In fact, it started the entire process all over again. But it wasn't until 1988 that Johnny was released, and it was actually after he was released that the district attorney in the county where San Quentin is located decided not to prosecute him.
0: What year was that?
1: It probably was later in 1988. It might have been 1989. It was in, I would say, it was in 1988.
0: Yeah. I'm surprised that that's how it ended because. It seemed like the state went to really far lengths to prosecute Johnny Spain and the others. Like you talked about how they built this specific high security courtroom with plexiglass in the Marin County Civic Center to carry out this trial. Like that to me is a really serious commitment to to trying Johnny Spain and the others. So why was that the case and how? why did it end in kind of such a kind of lackluster, half-hearted, like decision
1: to not prosecute Well, there were two things going on. One was the possible retrial and the other one was getting him paroled on his original conviction, which was a homicide that had a seven year to life indeterminate sentence. So well as to the indeterminate sentence, Dennis and the investigator Kathy Cornworth went around and got all these letters of support. For Johnny, who really turned his life around when he went to Vacaville State Prison and got all kinds of letters from guards at the prison that he should be released. It's really remarkable and, and shows you what a remarkable person Johnny was. He was a huge peacemaker at Vacaville and other places because he was a Black Panther and a defendant in the San Quentin Six, and everybody would listen to him. Uh, among the black and brown inmates. Mm -hmm. Among the white inmates, who he also respected, he was able to be listened to because he was advocating for peaceful coexistence. Mm -hmm. So as a result, there were all these letters in support of his parole, and yet the parole board kept on denying him parole. So uh, Dennis Wooden filed a writ of habeas corpus, in Los Angeles County Superior Court, where his original conviction was, and the judge ruled Basically, she ordered the parole board to grant a parole. So that's how he got out, and the case is still pending. But when they decided to drop the charges, remember how badly they did with the charges on the other five guys. All
0: right.
1: And by that time, Bingham had come back and they tried him, the lawyer who went to Canada, and he was acquitted. So they were probably looking at another big loss and a quick big loss, and they decided you know, we so not gonna
0: do it. yeah that makes sense it's pretty remarkable to work on a case like johnny spain's and also to do so so early in your career do you have advice for new lawyers for how they for ways that they can seek mentorship because i feel like that was that was a big reason why you worked on the johnny spain case right because a mentor of yours brought you on
1: well, I didn't know him. He became my mentor. Oh,
0: he became but, your mentor. Okay, okay. I,
1: I went up I went up to San Rafael and I met this guy, David Mayer. Uh, he was like my big brother. and We became very, very close. Uh, but I didn't know him at all. I do mentor a lot of people now because I think I have an obligation to do that. We have some minority students, scholars who are black and brown folks in the San Francisco Bay Area going to law schools. And. I mentor a lot of those folks that I run across because I chair the committee that awards those scholarships, and it's exceptionally rewarding. One of our former scholars was, years ago, uh, uh, named a San Mateo County, California Superior Court Judge, the first woman on that court.
0: Wait, the first woman?
1: The first Black woman. Oh, Um, Black. At the age of 30, still, either way. Yeah, still, you know, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: at the age of 37. So we've had some great successes, but it's tough for students to get mentorship in good ways. Uh, I
0: agree.
1: Students who get out of law school with big debts sometimes feel that they're forced to go and work for some big law firm. Uh, And those who... Do that, I try to advise keep your head down, save your money, get off as much debt, and get the hell out of there as quickly as you can. And that, in fact, is what my friend Amara Lee, the now judge, did. She went to a firm, stayed there for six years, saved her pennies, and got out of Dodge. Uh, but it's easy to get sucked in by the money and get sucked in by the ability to pay off student debt. I do believe that with commitment, somebody can go through law school and take a job that really is meaningful to that young lawyer and deal with the debt in a helpful way. But I got to tell you, I'm not sure I could have done it. I didn't have to do it. And I was far, far more fortunate. So the path that students have who become young lawyers and want to do that is a very daunting path. I just, got a, I just got a LinkedIn message from one of my former students. She's got a great job and she's doing really good stuff. And I said, I'm so proud of you, Nita. You're such a wonderful person uh, and lawyer. And she sent me back a LinkedIn message saying, you know, I'm glad to hear from you, professor, and all this stuff. So will not call me Richard. I and sometime I'd like to tell you how hard this road was. I mean, I can't even imagine it, but I'm going to get back in touch with her and say, Hey, let's talk. I want to
0: hear it, so. Yeah, I think I have kind of a privileged position in this discussion of law school debt because I graduated without undergrad debt and then I went to Stanford Law School and they have a very generous public interest loan forgiveness program. And like for me that like, you know, I worked at the Florence Project doing deportation defense. And then I went to the ACLU for a few years. Now I do legal journalism. And because of how flexible Stanford is, you know, doing legal journalism counts as doing legal work that qualifies for their public interest loan forgiveness program. And at the end of 10 years, um, my debt's going to be forgiven. And along the way, like they put money in my bank account every year to pay off my loans. So I'm content. I think that's a way better deal than working at big law and like defending Chevron and working 80 hours a week.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. But I, I just think that like in the public interest world, there isn't, I I would say, I think the bigger issue is like, I would say it's like, um, cultivating intentional mentorship. I don't, really know what the deal is but just in my own personal experiences I just felt like a lot of more experienced lawyers forgot like how little you know when you first graduate from law school and just don't have the patience to guide you um and that was what I found like the biggest obstacle to to advancing in the legal profession and to like do you know, like really cool work, like what you wrote about, um and not just like, you know, doing document review all day. I mean, I know you have to do document review for a few years, and I did do that, but like, it's I don't, I didn't feel like super inspired, like by a lot of the legal work, or yeah, it's kind of hard to be a lawyer. I went to law
1: school, and I think I have been the first to do this. Forgiveness program at NYU. Okay. I went through law school because I came from a privileged background. My parents are doctors, which didn't make them rich, but they gave me enough money to help with tuition. And I can't imagine what other people go through. I have a young friend who's been a mentee who I consider a good friend. In fact, I came into a game of the Warriors finals with me and my wife took so, Jamal with us. And he has Huge debt, uh, even though he got a scholarship from us and other scholarship monies, and uh, still huge debt. So I just decided I'm going to give him some money towards, I'm going to do my own loan forgiveness program. Yeah, yeah, amount of money every year to put towards his loan forgiveness. And and uh, I had to ask him whether he was okay with accepting it because I don't want to. I'm not his savior. I just want to be a mentor.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he is. And he just took a job, his dream job, uh, which is working for an environmental defense uh, agency. That's a really great one. And that's why he went to law school where he did. And uh, But it was a long road. He's, he was like three or four years in the wilderness before he got that job. Uh, but it's great. It doesn't work out that way for everybody. Yeah,
0: no, I get that, definitely.
1: And not everybody gets to go to Stanford or NYU, right?
0: That is true. Yeah. So I wanted to ask, you had a policy as a trial lawyer where if the DA offered harsher sentences after a preliminary hearing, you would just go to trial. Why was this important to you?
1: Well... At that time, we were practicing criminal law in Marin County, California, where San Quentin is located. And there was a criminal law practice there, although it was a struggle to get enough cases and we eventually moved to San Francisco. But the Marin County District Attorney decided that if a case went through preliminary hearing, whatever offer they made to resolve the case, taken off the table, and they would come up with a harsher offer.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty common tactic. Well, yeah,
1: it is. Uh, But the problem is that the preliminary hearing is the only chance you have to test the prosecution's evidence. Right. You don't go through a preliminary hearing. You're giving up basically all of your rights uh, that the defendant has. There are a few chapters in this book where the preliminary hearing won the case. And one uh, case in which the preliminary hearing resulted in the whole thing getting thrown out. Well, so if you don't have that I how do you know how good a defense you have? So we sent a note to the district attorney's office saying, it is the policy of mayor and
0: Citroen.
1: Yeah, we will not take a worse deal than the one that you offered us before the preliminary hearing. Right. Said basically, screw you, this is our policy. You come up with a policy, we got a policy. And the first test was a burglary case that my partner, David, tried. And the offer was some kind of plea to a felony, but not a lot of jail time. It was a second-degree burglary, young kid, white kid. wasn't that terribly hard. Uh, and we went through the preliminary hearing and the deal got worse. And they wanted a lot of jail time, six months of jail or something. So David said, no, our policy is a trial. And at the end of the trial, the judge, who was a staunch Republican, white-haired, older uh, man, reduced the charge from a felony burglary to a misdemeanor burglary on his own motion. And basically... We won the case. Wow. And he put the kid on probation for a misdemeanor, which isn't nearly as bad as a felony. The mm-hmm. DA just gave up and just said, okay, <laughs> pack not, it up. All that stuff anymore.
0: Right. Well, those are all the questions that I had. Uh, thank you so much for speaking with me. Uh, where can people find your book or other writings or just otherwise social media presence?
1: Well, I hope you tell everybody about it and that this podcast will spread the word. But anyone could go to www.richardzitron.com. My last name is Z-I-T-R-I-N. And there there's a button there to order the book. There's a lot of information about the book. There's information about other articles that I've published, which are over 100 other three books that I've written. Uh, but this one is just recently out and there are, you can order it uh, there or go to any one of the buttons on the after you hit the order button and order it there or hit the publisher's button, Political Animal Press, and get it directly. Or you can go to Amazon. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not advocating Amazon. Yeah,
0: that's like the last option if you've right. exercised. And
1: tell from talking to you about that Amazon's probably not your favorite place. But the reality is that a lot of people go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble, and the reality is that if they do that, it's fine. (laughs) Just so long as they go out there and find the book somewhere.
0: Okay. Yes, get the book. Um, Yeah, thank you so much for speaking with me.
1: You're very welcome.
0: Thanks so much for listening. Radio Cachimbona is a podcast that is hosted and produced by Yvette Porja, edited by Fuerte Arts Movement. If you want to support the podcast, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and follow Radio Cachimbona at Radio Cachimbona on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thanks so much for listening.